The Devil Within, the hit true crime podcast, is back with a terrifying journey into the mind of a madman. In the 1970s, New York City had it all. Hip-hop, punk rock, and the Son of Sam. The Devil Within, a season in hell, is available now wherever you get your podcasts. Do you want to listen to this episode ad-free? You can do that now with our all-new Apple Podcast subscription. For $2.99 a month, you'll get your episodes ad-free and you'll get access to our exclusive bonus archive. Thank you to all of you who have already subscribed. We hope you're enjoying. Welcome back to The Murder Diaries. I'm Natalie. And I'm Paige. On May 10th of 1996, a newspaper in Brown County, Texas, published a shocking photograph of a crime scene. The picture was taken on the side of a gravel road, pointed in the direction of a fence that marks the edge of a gun range. In the right-hand corner, you can see a charred, circular expanse of grass where a car was set on fire. And on the left, seven men stand huddled around the exact spot where Leanne Lorellis was murdered. Six of them are law enforcement officers. The tallest one is the head sheriff. But that seventh man, standing on the opposite side of the fence in a t-shirt and trucker cap, points at something on the ground. So what's shocking about this photo? First, the man in the trucker cap is both the town undertaker and the owner of the gun rage. Why has he been invited to an open investigation crime scene? Second, the men aren't wearing gloves. They don't have cameras or evidence bags. This photograph remains proof that Leon's case didn't include a forensic investigation. Instead, his case was swept under the rug and remains unsolved to this day. Leon's case follows a long line of Texas crimes that have received very little media and police attention due to prejudice. Because of the way Leon's case has been neglected, it's been challenging for his family and friends to get the justice they deserve. 27 years after his death, his legacy as a brother, uncle, cousin, caretaker, co-worker, and dear friend lives on. His name was Leon Lorellis. This is his story. Still think it's in my head, but I'm walking with the dead. Juan Leon Lorellis, who went by Leon, was born on January 3rd of 1966. He grew up in the small town of Brady, Texas, in a traditional Mexican Catholic immigrant family. As the youngest of nine children, he ended up being his parents' primary caretaker. In high school, Leon's siblings were all in their 30s and 40s, and he was in charge of picking up his parents' medication and driving them to doctor's appointments in bigger cities. Since Leon wasn't close in age to his siblings, he grew up very close to his niece, Arlene, who was just three years younger than he was. Arlene remembers Leon as shy, generous, and kind. They were best friends and spent tons of time together. Leon and Arlene joined the Brady High School marching band, and that's where Leon played trumpet. They regularly attended football games and music competitions together. Leon adored music and dancing. He and Arlene went to the local dance club every Saturday night, but not to drink, to dance. They would dance for hours at a time. His favorite pop artist was Madonna, and he had Celine Dion's Because You Loved Me on repeat. He also loved cooking holidays in bright white sneakers. Leon crafted delicious meals with whatever he could find at the pantry, And he taught Arlene how to make Spanish rice and cream cheese roll-ups. He would garnish them with crab, olives, cranberries, and all sorts of experimental ingredients. 
we had the honor of speaking with Arlene in an exclusive interview. And she mentioned how she still makes some of his signature dishes. Here's her talking about that. I try to use some of his recipes still to this day, just, you know, like at Christmas time. I guess it kind of makes me feel like he's with me, you know, or I'm having a spot saved for him for Christmas because he loved the holidays so much. After graduation, Leon and Arlene decided to move west to San Angelo. Leon moved in with Arlene to help her out with her newborn son before moving with her and her family once again. Then I had two more children. We moved, that's when we moved to Brownwood. And he again went to live with me and he watched all three of my boys while I worked during the day. And that's the reason he worked the graveyard shift at Kroger. It was for me and my boys. The city of Brownwood was a 40-minute drive from where Leon and Arlene grew up. They both found jobs working for Kroger and Walmart, and Leon took care of Arlene's three boys during the day, choosing to work the night shift at Kroger for extra income. Leon sacrificed his sleep and time to support his niece and her family. That's how much he loved them. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. He became fast friends with his coworkers, taking them out to lunch and giving them birthday and Christmas gifts. He didn't have a lot of money, but what he did have, he gave freely. People described him as a big teddy bear, soft-spoken and hardworking. When Arlene's children were old enough to go to school, Leon was finally able to dedicate more time to making friends and forming relationships of his own. He moved into an apartment with his older brother, George, in Bangs, Texas, which was about a 15-minute drive from Brownwood. And by April of 1996, Leon was 30 and just starting to live life as his true self. He'd come out as gay to select friends and family and started dating someone who was not out yet. But it was dangerous to be out in Brownwood, which had a population of less than 20,000 people and rampant homophobia. Leon wasn't publicly out, but after years of helping others, he was starting to prioritize himself. He wanted to be out, and many people think that this is why his life was cut short. I think that's what tears me up the most, is because he was such a wonderful person, such a kind person, always helping everybody, and he was finally able to start living his true self, and he didn't even get a chance to fall in love or get married and have children, buy a home, all the normal things. Those were taken away from him. And if anyone deserves those things, it was him. In the weeks leading up to the murder, two men known as the brothers were raiding and damaging stores all over the town. When they came into Kroger, Leon told the brothers he wasn't going to allow them to steal merchandise or harass the female employees. After Leon stood up to them, though, they began harassing and threatening him outside of work. Leon told his cousin he was being harassed. The cousin lived in Brownwood and liked to cruise around town. On two separate occasions, he witnessed Leon meeting up with people in strange places. On April 29th, Leon was standing in the parking lot of a city park, speaking to a man in a, quote, little red car. Leon's cousin asked who he was talking to, and Leon replied, a doctor friend from the hospital. The second time happened on May 3rd. 
The cousin also saw Leon's Ford Thunderbird in the Blockbuster parking lot, which was across the street from Kroger. The cousin stopped by and asked what he was doing. Leon said he was waiting across the street for his girlfriend. Then the cousin asked why Leon was waiting so far away, and Leon said the girlfriend's father, who was a highway patrol officer, had threatened to kill him if he ever saw Leon with his daughter. In 1996, the state troopers and the Brownwood Sheriff's Department wore the same exact uniform. Because of this, it's possible Leon was threatened by a state trooper doing highway patrols, or the officer could have been involved with the local police. And now a word from today's sponsor. We all know sleep is important. It's literally the foundation of our mental and physical health. Obviously, that all plays into how we can perform throughout our busy days. It's so important to have a consistent nighttime routine. It's honestly kind of a non-negotiable. Unfortunately, a lot of us don't get enough sleep though. Did you know that less than six to seven hours per night is linked to reduced white blood cell count? And those white blood cells are our army that protect us against illness, diseases, fighting viruses, bacteria, and more. If that wasn't enough, poor sleep is also known to lead towards weight gain, mood issues, and poor mental health. I know all of that that I just listed completely applies to me when I'm not getting enough sleep. We want to introduce to you Beam's Dream Powder. It's their best-selling healthy hot cocoa for sleep. It tastes amazing with no sugar added. It's available in amazing flavors like sea salt caramel, cinnamon cocoa, and chocolate peanut butter. Say no more. Might sound cliche, but I have to say it. Better sleep has never tasted better. Beam's Dream Powder is a powerful, all-natural blend of reishi, magnesium, L-theanine, melatonin, and nano-CBD to help you fall asleep, stay asleep, and wake up refreshed, the magical trifecta. Some of you may know this about me, I love numbers, so here's the numbers. A recent clinical study revealed that Dream helps 93% of users wake up feeling more refreshed, and again, 93% reported that Dream helped them get a more restful night's sleep. All you have to do to enjoy Beam is mix it into hot water or your favorite milk, stir or froth, and enjoy before bedtime. I like to enjoy Beam, especially on weeknights when I know I got to get up and go to work in the morning. I know there's going to be a lot on my mind of what I want to try and get done the next day. It's just sometimes hard for me to turn my mind off. So Beam's Dream definitely helps me do that. So I like to enjoy it a little bit before I brush my teeth and head to bed. Try Beam with me today and find out what not just me, but Forbes and New York Times are all talking about. Head over to shopbeam.com slash diaries and use code diaries at checkout to get 40% off. This is a limited time only for our listeners. So head over to shopbeam.com slash diaries and use code diaries for 40% off. Here's the thing. The cousin didn't know Leon was gay or anything about Leon's dating life. Leon had told a friend who worked at the local coffee shop that he wanted to come out, but because his boyfriend didn't, he was considering breaking up with him. That same day, May 3rd, co-workers reported that a man had come into Kroger to talk with Leon. It was the sheriff's son, who had never come by to visit Leon before, so it must have been an important conversation, maybe even a warning. We'll never know exactly what they talked about or if the sheriff's son was the man Leon was dating. What we do know is after Leon was threatened by a law enforcement officer and the brothers, he was under a lot of stress in the week leading up to his death. 
By May 8th, Leon had told three co-workers that the brothers were after him. Their threats had grown more serious, and he was scared. Leon's sister remembers the day before his murder. Leon told her that the brothers were angry at him, and he didn't know why. Most people in town feared the brothers for good reason. They were aggressive and destroyed property. But for some reason, they were targeting Leon, whether because he was gay, stood up to them, or knew something he shouldn't. We can only speculate. On May 9th, Leon left for his night shift at 11.30. He was always early for his midnight shift because he liked to hang out with the outgoing staff, which occasionally included Arlene, who worked next door. She remembers walking outside of work, seeing Leon's Ford Thunderbird parked in the lot, and wondering why he didn't say hi to her on his way inside. Another coworker, Peggy, liked to hang out with him in the cash office. She remembers glancing out the window and seeing his car parked directly next to his usual spot. And she said to herself, yay, Leon's here. But Leon never entered the store. And by midnight, the Ford Thunderbird and the car parked in his usual spot had vanished. When Peggy realized the car wasn't there, she called Leon's brother George to see if Leon had gone back home. But he hadn't. So George decided to follow Leon's route to work. He drove to Kroger and back, but couldn't find the Thunderbird. Meanwhile, Peggy called hospitals and the police, who told her the only report they received was about a car accident. Suddenly, fire trucks passed Kroger, heading for a car accident. Peggy reported all of this to George, who then called the sheriff's department. And by that time, the department had received two 911 calls. The first call was from an anonymous source on May 10th at 12.27 a.m. They reported seeing a car on fire near a gun range, which was about a 13-minute drive from the Kroger parking lot. The second call was at 12.30 a.m. A woman had found Leon's body. The woman who found Leon was coming home from her hospital job, driving on Farm Road, a low-traffic area with no houses or buildings in the vicinity. She was distraught to find Leon's body 10 feet away from his Ford Thunderbird. He'd been shot in the back of the head while he was down on his knees execution style with a 38 caliber lead bullet in his thumb. His car had been set on fire, presumably to destroy evidence. Within minutes of the woman calling 911, the fire department and the head sheriff arrived on scene. They found Leon's body about 30 feet from the entrance of the gun range and six feet away from the burning shell of his car. Other than the bullet wounds, he had no other injuries. The moment the sheriff realized Leon Lorellis, aged 30, had been murdered, he recused himself from investigating the crime due to a, quote, conflict of interest. He called in the Texas Rangers, and Bobby Grubbs was assigned to the case. The car was towed, and they waited until dawn to analyze the rest of the scene. Legally, when a Texas sheriff reports a conflict of interest, the entire local department is supposed to recuse themselves of investigating. However, one of the officers stayed on the case to help Grubbs investigate. Do you remember the photograph of seven men huddled together at the crime scene, the one I mentioned at the top of this case coverage? By dawn on May 10th, when the newspaper photographer arrived, five members of the sheriff's department, Ranger Bobby Grubbs, and the local undertaker slash gun range owner were standing where Leon's body was found. They had no forensic equipment. The undertaker seemed to be pointing out evidence. And the head sheriff stared at the ground, treading on a crime scene he didn't plan to investigate. That same morning, Leon's family was given the devastating news of his passing. Arlene and George stood outside the station waiting for news, answers, anything. The police refused to reveal information. It wasn't until Arlene got her hands on the morning newspaper and this photograph that she knew exactly what happened to her best friend. 
For decades, Leon's family questioned whether an autopsy was even performed because the paperwork wasn't released until this year, 2023. As an aside, when we were interviewing Arlene, I mentioned that I had a copy of the autopsy. And she asked if she could have a copy of it because she was never able to get a copy for herself. The Travis County Morgue's chief medical officer was in charge of examining Leon's body. He had finished the autopsy report by 9 a.m. on the 10th, even though the morgue was four hours away. As a result, the timeline is super fuzzy. Since police officially started their investigation at dawn, this didn't leave much time for the autopsy to occur. An officer from the sheriff's department, Mike McCoy, was also present at the autopsy. The day after Leon's death, police began interviews. They called in the brothers, Leon's co-workers, and only one of his family members, George. According to Arlene, George was asked if Leon did drugs, despite the autopsy revealing no drugs or alcohol in his system. During this time, it came to light that someone had witnessed two cars driving slowly along the shoulder of the gun range at 12.15 a.m. One car was a black Ford Thunderbird, and the other, a white Ford pickup truck with a red stripe. It had chrome mirrors, a gooseneck trailer ball, and tinted windows. This was the only promising lead. Arlene told us the following. The first 911 caller was anonymous, so we don't know who that person is. And that's my plea, is if it was you or you know the person that did that, please reach out to me. I want to know what you saw. I want to know who else was there. Apparently, that was also a very popular party site that people would go party there by the railroad tracks where the gun range is. If there were any other witnesses, they were too scared to come out with more information. Arlene also said, I feel like it was very organized. You know, it took literally 30 minutes from getting him at the Kroger parking lot, taking him all the way out there, shooting him, burning the car, and leaving was 30 minutes. And they took him to a place where it was very secluded and it's a gun range. So, you're, you know, it's not a normal to hear a gunshot. It was clear Leon's murder was premeditated, possibly involving multiple people. But nobody knew why he was murdered. Members of law enforcement theorized he was killed because he was gay. But Arlene isn't sure how they found this out, since he hadn't told many people. Regardless, Leon's murder was not deemed a hate crime. It was yet another cold case in a collection of cold cases. Leon's brother, George, was the only member of the household police would talk to. But in the weeks following, they ignored all of his calls. After a month, George visited Ranger Bobby Grubbs, wanting updates about the investigation. And according to Arlene, when George asked to see the case paperwork, Grubbs showed him how little investigating had been done. Two little pieces of paper. Those were his notes on the case. He had interviewed one of the brothers and decided the harassment and threats were unsubstantiated. Frustrated, George told the rest of his family that the police didn't care about Leon and weren't putting effort into the investigation. In 2002, the family hired a private detective to investigate Leon's case. During his investigation, he noticed corruption in the town and somebody threatened him with his life. The detective left the case without giving any details to Leon's family the FBI wouldn't get involved either. In 2008, Bobby Grubbs had allegedly identified more suspects in the case. He said he had a person he could indict, but he didn't have enough evidence to convict them. In 2016, Arlene was told that the main suspect had died by suicide in 2014. 
After personal research, Arlene realized the police's person of interest was the sheriff's son, the one Leon might have been dating. Right after Leon's death, the sheriff's son escaped town to create another life for himself outside of Brownwood. He married, had kids, and passed away 20 years later. After the sheriff's son passed away, Leon's case was closed. In the family's long search for justice, they have been frequently misled and denied access to records of the investigation. Texas has over 20,000 cold cases, but no online registry containing all of those cases, and many counties don't publish court documents for public consumption. Arlene hasn't been able to find records on Leon's case other than the information she has posted herself. On one of her many visits to the sheriff's department to ask about Leon's case, the secretary said, quote, everybody talks about it, and every once in a while we'll bring out his case and we'll take another look. But when Arlene filled out a form and listed all of the documents she wanted, the secretary returned with just a four-sentence press release. Later, Arlene's friend reached out to the judge who keeps all of the county records. He claimed he didn't remember Leon's case at all. After being pressured for months, he admitted in 2023 that he knew about the case, but that all of the documents had been damaged in a flood. But get this, there was no flood. After inquiring further about the quote-unquote flood, the department came out with the official autopsy. Arlene still isn't sure if the autopsy report is legitimate because it wasn't signed by the chief medical examiner or Officer Mike McCoy. So the question is, did they forget to sign it? Were autopsies required to be signed in the 90s? Or was the autopsy falsified? The search for answers has taken its toll on Leon's family and friends. His coworker Peggy says she remembers his murder like yesterday. And she considers it a, quote, double murder, since the stress led to the death of one of his older brothers. Recently, Arlene has devoted her time to sharing Leon's story with the world. She manages a GoFundMe to reopen the case. She is $5,000 away from her goal of hiring a private detective and attorney to locate the records she's been denied. But even if they are able to reopen the investigation, no amount of information will ever make up for how law enforcement has neglected Leon's case and his family in the past 27 years. Although Leon's case isn't considered a hate crime, it causes us to reflect on how rare it is for a hate crime to be reported as a hate crime. A Google search for the phrase Brownwood, Texas hate crimes pulls up a blog called Steve Soapbox. Steve Harris wrote dozens of blog posts on what life was like for queer people in Brownwood in the early 2000s. Brownwood radio hosts used the F slur on air. Steve faced death threats on a daily basis. When Steve researched Brown County hate crimes, he found none reported to the state of Texas, even though many crimes in the local newspaper appeared motivated by prejudice. Steve wrote these articles between 2001 and 2004. Leon's experience as a closeted gay Latino man in 1996 would have been just as oppressive, if not worse. Since the 90s, the FBI have been required to report hate crimes as hate crimes, but cannot motivate state and local law enforcement to do so. In a system where so many hate crimes go unreported, it's important to raise awareness about how bias escalates to crimes and bring justice to victims at the center of these stories. Leon's case is one of thousands of cases that deserves attention, not only because of the way it's been suppressed, but because of the kind, selfless person he was. Arlene and the rest of Leon's family are continuing to fight for answers. 
If you have any information regarding Leon's murder, please contact the Brown County Sheriff's Office at 325-646-5510 or the Heart of Texas Crime Stoppers at 800-222-8477. You can contribute to the investigation through Leon's GoFundMe by following Justice for Leon Lorellis on Facebook and by sharing his story with friends and family. We'll end with a quote from Arlene. I'm just fighting so hard. I need him to know that I did love him. I still love him and I still remember him and I'm not gonna, you know, let him be forgotten. And I'm gonna fight till my last breath to try to get him justice. Make sure you follow us on all of our socials at the Murder Diaries Pod. And don't be a stranger at the Murder Diaries Pod request at gmail.com and the Murder Diaries Podcast.com. Until then, stay safe. Bye. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.